had entered the train. While the carriage had held other travellers, they had screened her from his thoughts, but now that he and she were alone, she knew exactly what was passing through his mind. She could almost hear him asking himself what he should say to her. The thing had come that morning, brought up to her in an innocent-looking envelope with the rest of their letters, as they were leaving the hotel at Bologna. As she tore it open, she and Gannett were laughing over some ineptitude of the local guidebook. They had been driven of late to make the most of such incidental humours of travel. Even when she had unfolded the document, she took it for some unimportant business paper sent abroad for her signature, and her eye travelled inattentively over the curly whereases of the preamble until a word arrested her. Divorce. There it stood, an impassable barrier between her husband's name and hers. She had been prepared for it, of course, as healthy people are said to be prepared for death, in the sense of knowing it must come without in the least expecting that it will. She had known from the first that Tillotson meant to divorce her, but what did it matter? Nothing mattered in those first days of supreme deliverance but the fact that she was free, and not so much she had begun to be aware that freedom had released her from Tillotson as that it had given her to Gannett. This discovery had not been agreeable to her self-esteem. She had preferred to think that Tillotson had himself embodied all her reasons for leaving him, and those he represented had seemed cogent enough to stand in no need of reinforcement. Yet she had not left him till she met Gannett. It was her love for Gannett that had made life with Tillotson so poor and incomplete a business. If she had never from the first regarded her marriage as a full cancelling of her claims upon life, she had at least for a number of years accepted it as a provisional compensation. She had made it do. Existence in the commodious Tillotson mansion in Fifth Avenue, with Mrs. Tillotson Sr. commanding the approaches from the second-story front windows, had been reduced to a series of purely automatic acts. The moral atmosphere of the Tillotson interior was as carefully screened and curtained as the house itself. Mrs. Tillotson Sr. dreaded ideas as much as a draught in her back. Prudent people like an even temperature, and to do anything unexpected was as foolish as going out in the rain. One of the chief advantages of being rich was that one need not be exposed to unforeseen contingencies. By the use of ordinary firmness and common sense, one could make sure of doing exactly the same thing every day at the same hour. These doctrines reverentially imbibed with his mother's milk, Tillotson, a model son who had never given his parents an hour's anxiety, complacently expounded to his wife, testifying to his sense of their importance by the regularity with which he wore galoshes on damp days, his punctuality at meals, and his elaborate precautions against burglars and contagious diseases. Lydia, coming from a smaller town and entering New York life through the portals of the Tillotson mansion, had mechanically accepted this point of view as inseparable from having a front pew in church and a parterre box at the opera. All the people who came to the house revolved in the same small circle of prejudices. It was the kind of society in which, after dinner, the ladies compared the exorbitant charges of their children's teachers and agreed that even with the new duties on French clothes it was cheaper in the end to get everything from Worth, while the husbands over their cigars lamented municipal corruption 
and decided that the men to start a reform were those who had no private interests at stake. To Lydia, this view of life had become a matter of course, just as lumbering about in her mother-in-law's landau had come to seem the only possible means of locomotion, and listening every Sunday to a fashionable Presbyterian divine the inevitable atonement for having thought oneself bored on the other six days of the week. Before she met Gannett, her life had seemed merely dull. His coming made it appear like one of those dismal Crookshank prints in which the people are all ugly and all engaged in occupations that are either vulgar or stupid. It was natural that Tillotson should be the chief sufferer from this readjustment of focus. Gannett's nearness had made her husband ridiculous, and a part of the ridicule had been reflected on herself. Her tolerance laid her open to a suspicion of obtuseness from which she must at all costs clear her.